You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. and welcome back to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, with me, your host, Katie Charlewood, history harlot and reader of books. I've been on the BBC, have been on the BBC, have been on the BBC, I'm very excited, can you tell? I've been on the BBC. It's BBC Radio 4, so technically I have been on the BBC, and I will be dining out on this on every family dinner for the next however many family dinners I have. Well, brother, you may be a classically trained percussionist who traversed the Atlantic Ocean in a replica famine ship. But were you on the BBC, though? (laughs) Were you on the BBC, though? You were not on the BBC, though. I was on the BBC, though. I'm really annoying. I know. I'm being really annoying, but I'm just... uh, It's very surreal, and it's really nice to sort of be validated in any kind of way, because I'm, I'm a social scientist who teaches history on the internet. That's what I do. And, oh, well, sometimes I'll say things that I think are very basic and very typical and and sort of general knowledge. And I know I'm the one person who goes, well, knowledge isn't really general because of socialisation and culture and things like that. So I'll say stuff and then people will straight up argue with me. (laughs) Like, um, I'm still I'm still getting complaints about um, Elizabeth, basically Elizabeth Bathory, because some people really don't want to let go of the concept that she's. That she was like the most prolific serial killer in all of history. She killed more than 650 people, did she? Like, I had someone who was just like bumping their gums at me, ranting. Oh, she was evil. She killed up to 80 people. And I'm like, she ruled for 40 years. That's two people per year. I feel like in medieval Europe, that's, that's pretty low. If a male ruler had done that in any capacity, we wouldn't really hear about it. That being said, we never really hear about anything Queen Elizabeth did. The first, not the second. I mean, as far as I know, Queen Elizabeth II hasn't, like, been chopping off heads. But, to our knowledge, we don't know what she's trained those corgis to do. Because in Munster, Queen Elizabeth I had 400 families massacred in, like, an afternoon. But we don't talk about that. That's not discussed. And I find that very weird. But anyway, so I like want to thank everybody for rating and reviewing. You're, ah, you did it again. You keep saying such lovely things. 
uh, which is, is so, it's so nice. I just, it's so nice. You guys are so lovely and you say such amazing things and you just fill my heart with joy. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I know there's loads of podcasters out there who are like, that's not for my ego. And I'm like, whereas for me, it is very much, um, oh, it's not. But also it kind of is because I like compliments. <laughs> and like growing up in Ireland, it is so strange because you're sort of trained not to accept compliments and you kind of do a reverse compliment thing where someone compliments you um, and it can be on your dress and you're just like, I sure I got it from pennies. Oh, that's a lovely jumper. I sure... Oh, this old thing. I've had it forever. I traded it for a used tea bag and a worn-out shoe. Uh, you know, it's it's so weird. It's so weird. But yeah, speaking of the BBC, I am back on Thursday night, 11pm GMT, on the 26th of May, for the second episode of Gaslit, Groomed and Ghosted with Louisa O'Malan, where you get to hear me be resident historian again. Go check it out. Go check it out. We well, might. You may as well. You may as well. It's so weird hearing myself in the context of something else than this. It's because um, I I rarely listen to a full episode cohesively because I'll I'll edit and I'll do a bit and I'll edit and I'll do a bit, but I never re-listen to an episode. That's not true. I had to do it recently because I I I basically put my hat in the ring for the Irish Podcast Awards. Maybe we'll see how it goes. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, quit your jibber jabber and fact me. In fact, you I will. But first, we've got to get our source on. Our sources are Eleanor of Aquagene, A Life by Alison Weir. Women Crusading in the Holy Land in Historical Narrative by Natasha Hodgson. Revisiting Monarchy, Women and the Prospects for Power by Catherine Crawford. Queen Eleanor, Independent Spirit of the Medieval World by Polly Shawyer Brooks. And Eleanor of Aquitaine, The Mother Queen by Desmond Seward. Right, so I cannot actually convey to you just how excited I am to talk about Eleanor of Aquitaine. She was one of those people in history that was an absolute badass. And I mean that sincerely. The woman lived a life, let me tell you, and I will tell you. So let's start from the beginning. Eleanor was born... Maybe in 1122 or maybe in 1124. We're not entirely sure because, let's face it, why would anyone be bothered to actually write down the actual date of a woman in the past, regardless of how high they were up in the nobility scale? Women of the past. When were you born? Fuck it, it doesn't matter. Anyway, she was the oldest child of William X, Duke of Aquitaine, and Enor de Châtellerault. So she was born at some point between these two years. When? Who's to say? And her mother's like, I'm going to name you after myself. Kinda. So her mother, Enor, calls her daughter Ali Enor. So her mother names her Alinor, which comes from the Latin Alia Enor, which translates to the other Enor. Ah, this is Susan and other Susan. (laughs) I'm sorry. I find it funny. I like that. Okay, sidebar. In Irish, uh, Ella means like other, additionally. Uh, Say, for example, uh, Bohol is boy, 
Bohul Ela. This other boy, Bohul August Bohul Ela. So, like, in my head, whenever I hear the name Cinderella, I think, other Cinder? <laughs> ah, there's Cinder. August Cinderella. I know it's silly, but it's stuck in my head forever. But here's the thing about nobility, anyway. There's always going to be someone named after someone else. They have a habit of doing that. It's all about lineage and... Ugh. Lineage, tradition, respect, brown nosing. Whatever. Anyway. And... Honestly, not even the most interesting name in her family. Eleanor's gran had the nickname of Dangerous. We don't know what her real name was. All we have is her nickname because that's how she was known. But that's another story for another day. Back to Eleanor. So the Duchy of Aquitaine, it is actually the largest and wealthiest Duchy in 12th century France. It basically takes up most of their And because it's massive and is very rich, that's where everybody goes. So Paris at this point is still kind of like boring because it's the 12th century. And Aquitaine is this hustling, is the medieval equivalent of the bustling cultural centre. There's fashion and culture and education. So being this cultural and scholarly hub, all the nobility had fantastic educations. And of course, the children of the Duke of Aquitaine, they had the best education money could buy. So because she's a girl, Eleanor is automatically trained in what would be seen as the more feminine education, including household management, spinning, sewing. But on top of that, she would be taught astronomy, history, arithmetic. Eleanor's education revolved around getting her ready to be the wife of a rich and powerful man. Like, that's the end goal. She is the eldest child. She is the daughter. You know, she is the bargaining chip. She is the alliance maker. But when her only brother dies in 1130, when Eleanor's what? either six or eight years old, because we don't fucking know. One of those. She's next in line. She becomes the heir presumptive for the largest area in France, which meant that instead of just being trained to be a nobleman's wife, she was now being taught to be a ruler herself in her own right. In 1137, William X dies, making Eleanor the Duchess of Aquitaine. Eleanor becomes the most eligible maiden in all of Europe. She was clever, witty, apparently pretty, and had huge tracts of land. But you know, men like to be in control even beyond the grave. In his will, William X had appointed... So William X's will actually puts King Louis VI of France as Eleanor's guardian. Which wasn't really unusual for the time, because generally nobles would write a will... And they would appoint somebody to be the guardian of their, like, widow and children in order to ensure that they were treated fairly and that they weren't going to be fucked over by men. By evil, untrustworthy men who would loot their lands and destroy things and whatever, so. And of course, he asks the king to protect Eleanor and Aquitaine until such times as a suitable husband can be found for her. And obviously, Louis VI knew that he was going to be appointed this. Like, this wasn't, it wasn't a surprise. 
And so, quite literally, hours after being informed of William X's untimely demise, King Louis VI decided that Eleanor would be betrothed to his 17-year-old heir, who, in a surprising twist, is also named Louis. Oh, I'm I'm surprised. Are you surprised? Ooh. I think Louis was hoping to get control of Aquitaine and have, like, a larger control of France. However, the marriage contract between Eleanor and Louis stated that, that the Duchy of Aquitaine would only come under control of the crown once Louis and Eleanor produced an heir, the, the future king of France, effectively. And until such a child was born... Eleanor's lands would remain independent from the crown of France. Also, in addition, furthermore, one of the reasons why Louis VI barely waited for William's body to be cold before he engaged these two teens was because he had a pretty severe case of the dysentery and was currently shitting himself to death, which is also probably why the marriage agreement wasn't really too much in his favour. So Eleanor and Louis... They get married, and exactly one week later, King Louis VI dies. So in seven days, Eleanor has effectively upgraded twice. She went Duchess, Princess, Queen. I don't know if she was officially named a princess, but technically, let's just agree to it. It's funnier this way. It's the equivalent of not even unpacking your suitcase. They had just been installed as the Duke and Duchess of Aquitaine, and they had to bugger off back to Paris... Because, whoops, although now the king and queen of France. Even though they were similar in age, Eleanor was much more suited to ruling than her husband was. You see, Louis was never meant to be king. He was the spare to the heir. And generally, as the second son, he was supposed to go into some sort of religious vocation. But six years earlier, his older brother, Philippe, sadly lost his life in a tragic equestrian accident. 15-year-old Philippe had gone out riding with his mates and his horse tripped over a pig, catapulted him over the horse, fracturing so many of Philippe's bones that he died within 24 hours. And that was when they had to bring Louis back into the fold. So while Eleanor was being raised to be a leader, Louis was being raised by monks. The two could not have been more different Louis, at least at the start, was really into Eleanor. He was just like, wow, she's so worldly, she's so smart, she's so gorgeous, and everything else that comes with it. And Eleanor found him to be dull and overflowing with piety. Like, she was just not into this. And to top it all off, like, she'd come from Aquitaine, which was a cultural and educational and fashionable hub. And Paris was really... Ignorant, unrefined, and really fucking tedious. So clearly they were not the most compatible of couples, which was seen clearly by the incredible lack of heirs produced. But eventually, after eight years of being married, they have a daughter, Marie. And, you know, eight months after having Marie, Eleanor and Louis VII decide that now is the optimum moment to go on a crusade. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, this crusade is what some might determine as unsuccessful because it was, in fact, unsuccessful. Basically, they're trying to make their way to Edessa. That's their charge. On the way, there is a massacre. Shit goes down. 
Luckily, Louis is wearing a pilgrim's tunic and not a royal tunic. So while his bodyguards, the royal bodyguards, have their skulls crushed in, he manages to escape. Also doesn't help that Louis was not the most efficient military leader. So basically, it's a whole shit show. And seeing as Eleanor's uncle Raymond's place is on the way, they think, listen, let's stop there. So Raymond was the youngest brother of Eleanor's dad. And of course, after the absolute fucking disaster that she's gone through, she is incredibly happy to see her uncle. The court is very similar to what she grew up with in Aquitaine. They also speak the same dialect and they had similar educations and interests. Effectively, while she's staying there, her and her uncle are staying up late, they're chatting, they're spending a lot of time together. So she's spending a lot of time with a man who isn't her husband, speaking in a language that he does not understand. At which point, rumours start circulating that Eleanor is banging her uncle, which, by the way, ew, and also ick. Oh no, a homesick person is spending time with a relative. They must be shagging. Cool, so glad, so glad you thought that up. Anyway, these rumours are not helped by the fact that Eleanor does not want to return to Paris. She likes where she is. See, what this does is this reminds her of what she had and what she wants. And she really does not want to go back to Paris in a marriage with someone who she feels really is not her equal. So Eleanor wants to have the marriage annulled because of consanguinity. And you're like, what's that when it's at home? Basically, it meant closely related. Because they were third cousins once removed, it could be argued that this relationship could be seen as incestuous, which is the point she's trying to make. So Eleanor does not want to return to Paris. But Louis, he isn't going to Paris yet. First of all, it turns out, oh, Odessa has been razed to the ground, so there's no Odessa to save. So he's not going there. No real extra crusading for him. That being said, because, you know, raised by monks, he wants to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Eleanor does not. But he humiliates her and basically forces her to come with him. But of course she has to do what her husband says because she is a woman in the past. Raymond does try and convince Louis to then just go on another like holy crusade and go fight people. And Louis is like, nah, I think I'm just going to go do the praying thing. So the journey from the Holy Land back to France was, wasn't exactly smooth sailing. The journey home was uh, not an easy one. On the way from the Holy Land to France, Eleanor's like, fine, I will go back to Paris, but I'm going on a separate ship, which is then attacked by Byzantine pirates. They manage to escape. The ship then gets caught in a storm and lands in North Africa. And no one sees hiding her hair for her for two months when she actually manages to make it to Sicily. She finds out that everyone assumes that both her and Louis died at sea. She's then given food and shelter by King Roger II of Sicily. It's there that she discovers that her uncle Raymond was actually beheaded by Muslim forces in the Holy Land, which probably made Louis incredibly happy. And instead of heading back to France, Eleanor goes to see the Pope. And she's like, please... Can you annul this marriage? And he goes, that is an option. However, have you considered sleeping in the same bed? Thank you, Pope, for that one. So they do this, thus resulting in their second child in 1150. A second daughter, Alex. 
Now this wasn't good because at this point they still had no male heir, which is, you know, lineage. What every man of the era wants. A male heir. Because men are more important than women. So on and so forth. While this is going on, Louis VII is getting a bit paranoid about the Plantagenets. He's worried that they're getting too much power and that they're going to be a real fucking problem for him soon. And Louis is reading from the playbook that the best defence is a good offence. So he decides to go and attack Henry Plantagenet, the Duke of Normandy. 17-year-old Henry, meanwhile, is already fighting for the English throne and really didn't need a two-pronged attack. It wasn't good for him. And his dad's like, maybe see if you can have a compromise. And so Henry goes to Paris, meets with Louis, and they go to work out a peace deal. And this is where Henry meets Eleanor for the first time. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So Eleanor at this point is 10 years older, a full decade older, than Henry. Clearly, an impression was made. So about half a year or so after this event, the marriage between Eleanor and Louis is annulled. Finally, the Pope goes, yes, absolutely, you can do it. And he allows it because of consanguinity. The Pope had decreed that they were not too closely related in 1149, but they were too closely related in 1152. Three years. Apparently, it takes three years to really grasp the understanding of a family tree. Perhaps that's it. Or perhaps it's something to do with the fact that Eleanor had not produced any male heirs for Louis. Hmm? Hmm? Effectively, Louis wanted to go marry someone else and start popping out some boys. And you might be thinking, what happened to the daughters? The princesses? Well, they're actually okay. Because the way the annulment worked and because the marriage had been entered to in good faith, so the daughters are still legitimate, they're not bastardised, they're fine, it's all good. So Eleanor, she's like, fuck this for a game of soldiers, I'm off. Great, I'm going to leave now. And as she's travelling to Poitiers, two lords tried to kidnap her so that they could marry her and get claim to the lands of Aquitaine. (laughs) 
These attempts were unsuccessful. And by the time she lands in Poitiers, she sends envoys straight to Henry and she's like, hey, let's get married. And Henry's like, yes, absolutely 100%. And eight weeks after her annulment, they get married. And luckily for Eleanor, if she actually... And the funny thing is, for Eleanor, if she did want an annulment, it's actually easier because she was third cousins once removed with Louis, but she's just third cousins straight off with Henry. So it's it's close enough. So they have this nice and simple ceremony. It's not the lavish affair that usually you have when, you know, two massive nobles get married. And at least to begin with, Eleanor and Henry are really into each other. So much so that in just over a year, Eleanor gives birth to their first son, William. In 1154, Henry succeeds his cousin Stephen as King of England, making his empire the most powerful force in Western Europe. So the Angevin Empire is... So Henry's empire is fucking massive. It is probably, if I'm not mistaken, the most powerful force in Western Europe. So much so that he was constantly out, like, travelling and forcing nobles to bend the knee, crushing the odd uprising here and there. Even though, you know, quite busy, Eleanor and Henry still managed to find time to perform their, uh, marital duties. And in a complete contrast to her marriage with Louis, in which the first eight years of her marriage, little to no consummating was happening... In the first six years of her marriage to Henry, Eleanor gives birth to five children. William, Henry, Matilda, Richard and Geoffrey. But she wouldn't stop there. After that, she also manages to give birth to Eleanor, Joan and John. For the most part, Henry II of England and Eleanor of Aquitaine had a pretty standard to good marriage for the early medieval period. Henry was at least aware that Eleanor was a competent ruler and he entrusted her to basically govern when he was out surveying his lands and whatnot. Henry could not keep it in his pants, so he was out and he had many affairs, a fuck ton of illegitimate kids, two of which he actually acknowledges and Eleanor seems incredibly chill with this, probably because it's very typical of the time it was just how things were like one of his illegitimate sons is actually raised by Eleanor so he already had illegitimate kids before they got married his oldest at George was actually raised by the queen in her household like that she was like yeah sure come on fine which and he was educated he was well fed he basically turned out absolutely fine So Eleanor's oldest son, William, he passes away at the age of three. This still left four sons with whom they had to, like, figure out who was going to inherit what. So effectively, there's this peace treaty with France. Out of that, it's decided that young Henry would marry Princess Marguerite, who was King Louis' daughter, from his second marriage. Like, he wasn't marrying his sister. Want to make that clear. (laughs) So effectively, young Henry would inherit England, Anjou and Normandy. Richard would inherit Aquitaine from his mother. And Geoffrey was betrothed to the Duke of Brittany's only child so that he would inherit 
that dushy, duchy, duchy, their youngest son, John, he, uh, no plans were made for him. <laughs> so Eleanor and her husband, Henry, they go visit Aquitaine, the whole purpose of which is to officially instate her as of the Duchess Regent, so that effectively it would still, you know, come under the blanket of the English crown, but Eleanor would be able to hold her own court there, she would effectively be the ruler and leader, which is really handy because this is what she was raised to do, and also it meant that Henry didn't have to worry about it because she was looking after it. Also, the people of Aquitaine, and because they were ruled by one of their own, chances are rebellions and whatnot less likely to happen. So Eleanor's having a great time. She's ruling Aquitaine. After we well, her son Richard joins her, effectively because he's supposed to inherit this anyway. So it's good that he gets there, learns the way of the people and, you know, is seen. And because they're spending all this time together, they actually become quite close. This creates... So while she's holding court in Aquitaine, it becomes known as the Court of Love. And this is where the sort of the concept of the courtly game of love and things start. Like, that's where the seeds come from. It all starts here. So she is holding court and she is living her best life. Meanwhile, Henry's stuff isn't going too well. There's uh, the whole thing with Thomas Beckett. He's not really getting on too well with his sons. Henry II had a habit of making, uh, you know, promises. You see, young Henry isn't too happy because even though he was crowned King of England, so he's like a co-king or whatever with his dad, he doesn't actually have any power. And he's getting restless, he's getting a wee bit unhappy and some might say resentful. And this all comes to a head because Henry II is trying to broker this like marriage deal for his youngest son, John. Now, obviously, the count with him he's trying to arrange this deal with and naturally, the question about what lands John is going to bring into the marriage. Like, what's that going to be? And Henry II is like, uh, three castles in Anjou. Which were actually part of the agreement of inheritance for young Henry. So in a huff, young Henry fucks off to France to his father-in-law, Louis VII, and is like, listen, my dad's a dick and he's given away my shit. What the actual fuck? And Louis's like, hmm, have you considered rebellion? And after we chat, Louis decides to revolt against his dad. Before heading back to England, he pops into Aquitaine, grabs two of his brothers, Richard and Geoffrey, and is like, hey, let's go attack dad. So fair enough. Three brothers, three princes, they're involved. But, but Eleanor, she could have just sat on the sidelines. She could have just waited it out or whatever. However... She says, fuck this for a game of soldiers. And she rose up against her husband with her sons. Nobody really knows why she was involved, but... So, like, there's rumours that, you know, she was unhappy... That she was, like, deeply jealous and unhappy about Henry's affair with fair Rosamond, something or other. But it's more likely that she thought, well three against one, probably best to side with my young, strong sons, whom she could probably convince to, you know, give her back the powers that she was supposed to have in Aquitaine. Because Henry had this habit of, you know, undermining her rule consistently, which was super fun for her. 
Anyway, long story short, Henry basically crushes the revolt. Don't worry, he forgives his son, but he decides to imprison Eleanor for the rest of her days. Except, wasn't quite the rest of her days. It was just the rest of his. Sixteen years, mind you. The funny thing about Eleanor's imprisonment is we don't actually know where she was. So for the next 16 years, Eleanor would be held in confinement. She was basically under house arrest. So she still had servants and all the sort of relative luxuries, but she was confined. She couldn't go out. She didn't really have as much communication. Like she didn't have the opportunity to speak or see her, to see her children or anything like that. And so Henry would move her to different locations, like, over the years. Except when she was brought out for special occasions, where he'd be like, look, she's still alive. And she would, like, for Christmas and, like, special holy things, they'd be like, here, here she is, great. And then he'd chuck her back away again. And while she's imprisoned, Henry the Younger, he decides to revolt again against his father. He then gets ill and dies and on his deathbed he asks his father to release his mum and Henry's like "Mm, nah and upon young Henry's death right the king of France is like um I think Marguerite owns this young Henry's widow owns Normandy right it's hers she should have it back but but Henry II declares that those lands were actually Eleanor's and upon Henry the Younger's death they actually revert back to her. She is summoned to Normandy. She gets sent there, and so she's confined in Normandy, but she's there. When Henry finally dies in 1189, the first thing that Richard does, Richard Lionheart, by the way, is he sets his mother free. He releases her from confinement, and he goes, yep, and he basically gives her a carte blanche so she can do whatever the fuck she wants. (laughs) And what does the 65-year-old Eleanor do? What's the first thing she decides to do? She becomes a prison abolitionist, right? And releases every person who is put in jail by Henry II. Be free, my pretties, be free. Like, she empties the jails. So while Richard the Lionheart is off crusading, he leaves Eleanor to rule in his stead. And so while he's out, you know massacring in the name of God, he gets captured and they're holding him to ransom. So Eleanor, she is ruling England in Richard's name, signing herself Eleanor by the grace of God, Queen of England. So after he was done crusading, Richard was sailing home, where he's captured and imprisoned in an Austrian castle. He's then handed over to the German Emperor Henry VII, who demands a ransom. So Eleanor raises the money for this ransom, whereas Prince John is trying to pay the captors more money to keep Richard prisoner for longer. So yeah, she raised the money and she's also like petitioning the Holy Roman Emperor to sort out the release of her son. That being said, when John did inherit the throne unexpectedly, she helped him rule. So Eleanor is still involved with ruling and negotiating well into her 70s. So in 1199, when she's either 75 or 77, one of those, the grandson of her ex-husband, whose name you'll never guess, it's Louis. His name is Louis. 
he's the 12-year-old heir apparent to the French throne. And it's decided that he's going to marry one of Eleanor's granddaughters. So she travels to Castile in Spain. So she sets off. She's heading to Castile in Spain so that she can select one of her granddaughters and start the negotiations. But just outside Poitiers, so she's ambushed and fucking kidnapped by Louis IX of Lusignan. She basically secures her own release and then continues on to Castile. So Eleanor decides that her youngest granddaughter, Blanche, shall be betrothed to Louis. So she accompanies Blanche as far as the Valley of the Loire, where the Archbishop of Bordeaux takes over her as her escort. After that, Eleanor, she heads to Fontevraud, where she has to stay and rest because she's pretty ill. So much so that John actually comes and visits her, you know, just in case. By 1201, a year later, King John of England and Philippe II of France, they're at war. And so the almost 80-year-old Eleanor of Aquitaine declares her support for her son John and sets forth to Aquitaine. She does this so that she can prevent her grandson, the Duke of Brittany, from taking control. Now, he discovers that she's in... And when he finds out that she's in the castle of Mirabeau, lays siege upon the castle in which she is residing. Again, nearly 80 years old, Eleanor of Aquitaine commands the defence of a castle against the attacks of her own grandson, Arthur of Brittany. Until John, John managed to send troops in to basically quell it. After this, Eleanor returns to Fontevraud. And after this, Eleanor's like, I'm done. I'm done ruling. I'm done with this. So she returns to Fontevraud, where she takes the veil as a nun. And on the 1st of April, 1204, Eleanor of Aquitaine passes away, presumably from old age. And so ends the life of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Queen of France, Queen of England, a survivor of at least four abduction attempts, several battles, mother of at least ten children, including three kings, two queens, and becoming the great-grandmother of two saints. A woman imprisoned for 16 years, and as an OAP, defended her castle against her grandson. Needless to say, and who be... And at the end of it, decided to become a nun. Now, that... Now, when I tell... Now, when I told you she lived a life, I wasn't fucking joking. And so, if you liked today's episode, feel free to go rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can say anything. The good... The thing about... The way the Apple Podcasts algorithm works is that if you write anything in a review, it automatically bumps things up and moves me up the algorithm which really really helps on a business end for me it is very very handy and I greatly appreciate it and you have no idea like I'm actually being noticed by other podcast networks and stuff right now which is very strange but very exciting that being said if you want to support me you can follow me on all of the social media channels I am on I am on TikTok Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. But of course, it is recommendation time. For reading, I am going to suggest The Sexual History of London. It is actually one of my favourite books. It is so fun. You should definitely give it a go. For listening, 
You should、uh, go listen to me on Louisa Omelan. <laughs> My Chemical Romance released a sound. No, a song. I mean, they could have released a sound. For all I know, it, they could have released a sound. But they released a song. <laughs> Oh, which is、uh, my little emo heart is just pounding, so I'm very excited. And watching the Lost City, go watch it, please! It is so funny. It is so funny. Generally, if a movie exists and Daniel Radcliffe is in it, you know it's going to be either unhinged in some way or it's just going to be really, really fun. And with that, I shall bid you all farewell. Adios. Au revoir, au revoir, to Zen, my friends. Bye bye. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queens Podcast. And here at Queens, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history, from New Orleans voodoo queen Marie Laveau to Marie Antoinette and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Cheers.